At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains swear words and violence, and the subject matter isn't appropriate for young children. Want to do that counting thing? Yes. One. Two. Three. Four. It's the middle of January, a little over a year ago. Jessica Miller and I need to get our recording synced up because she's calling with some pretty big news. So what's going on? So today's the day. It's Records Day. And they're here. Jessica, you probably remember, works for the Salt Lake Tribune. And if she sounds a bit giddy there, it's because she's been waiting 16 months for this day to come. Jessica's been reporting on Utah's huge youth treatment industry ever since a SWAT team got called to a riot at one of those programs back in 2019. On the ground, on the ground, everybody on the ground! Get on the ground, do it now! Get on the ground, do it now! Like, it literally took kids rioting and all of the police department showing up for us to realize, like, oh my gosh, this place has a problem. That made Jessica want to know what was going on inside all the other treatment programs in Utah. Because there are so many of them. And she had another goal, too. She wanted to find out what the state government was doing to prevent riots, abuse, and other problems from happening in the future. That's the kind of stuff I'm interested in looking at, is what is the state doing to hold these places accountable? Because they're the ones who hold the power to let them stay open. So Jessica made a formal request to the state of Utah for everything it had on these treatment programs. Every inspection checklist and rule violation going back five years. Some states put that kind of information online for free, but not Utah. And the state demanded thousands of dollars to turn it over. Jessica asked her readers to help cover the costs, and they came through. And now, after all that time and money, she's staring at an email with a Google Drive link. Should we open it up? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. Clicking on the link. More than 150 treatment programs, times five years. There were thousands of pages in that Google Drive. It took a team of reporters from the Tribune, KUER, and APM Reports weeks to go through everything. So my fellow reporter was looking through these records and she messages me on Slack and she says, do you think this one's bad? And she tells me what it is. And I was like, oh my God, Peyton, like there has been nothing like this that I've seen in any other records before. The story we found in that document isn't one you've heard yet on this podcast. And it's not even about Integrity House. Not exactly. But everything you've heard over the last four episodes, we wouldn't have found any of it if we hadn't found that one document. 
This is Sent Away, an investigative podcast from KUBR, The Salt Lake Tribune, and APM Reports. I'm David Fox. If this is the first episode you're listening to, you're going to be pretty confused. You should press pause and start at the beginning. This is episode five, Under New Management. We'll get to that document we found and what it revealed a little later. But to understand how it connects to everything you've heard so far, we need to go back to 2013 again, the year the world Daniel Taylor built came crashing down. Police in Cedar City arrested two staff members of a residential treatment facility after allegations of sexual assault at Integrity House surfaced in late May. Emails show the state was facing pressure from political leaders to shut Integrity House down. But that's not what happened. Daniel Taylor was swiftly fired, and so the state never even tried to revoke the program's license. Still, as the months dragged on, the place was falling into disarray. And the state knew it. An inspector came by, and he wrote that the program was in general emotional upheaval. But during the same visit, the inspector wrote that he was unable to find a single rule violation. Not one. Even so, it was looking pretty dire for Integrity House. Staff were resigning, half the beds were empty. And then, someone stepped in to save the place. Again. Mr. Hoffman? Your Honor, the purpose for the Rule 56F motion was the fact that, let me back up one step and tell you what's happened in this case, so you understand. Remember Blaine Hoffling? He worked as a lawyer for Integrity House, off and on over the years. And that's audio we found of him arguing in court for a different client. But Hoffling was more than a lawyer. He'd been a one-time business partner with the Taylors. And he'd even toyed with the idea of getting into the teen treatment industry himself. At one point in the early days of Integrity House, state records show he considered becoming its executive director. And now with Integrity House floundering, he had an opportunity. Six months after Daniel's arrest, Hoffling sends an email to the state. It says that he's, quote, representing both the outgoing owner and the new ownership team at Integrity House. That means he's both the buyer and the lawyer for the seller at the same time. And he's still representing Daniel Taylor against multiple felony charges. All right, court of call 16050070, Taylor versus Huffling. The Taylors eventually filed a lawsuit against Hoffling over all of this. It alleged he committed fraud and malpractice against them. Scott Burns appearing for the plaintiffs, Your Honor. Good afternoon. Scott Burns represented the Taylors in that case, and he spoke about it during a hearing a few years ago. He said Hoffling told the Taylors that if they didn't sign the business over to him and fast, the state was going to shut them down. And Blaine Hoffling sent them the agreement and said, we got to get this out of your name. This is going to be bad. So they lost their business. At the hearing, Burns said it had been years, and Hoffling still hadn't paid the Taylors anything for Integrity House. Mr. Hoffling says uh, they transferred it to me for what? For value, the value that I had at the time. Preposterous. In his deposition, Hoffling says Integrity House had no value when he took it over. Its reputation was ruined. 
It was worth nothing. And that's what he paid for it. When the plaintiffs filed this lawsuit, Mr. Hoffman and his associates were flabbergasted that things like this could be said. Willard Bishop represented Hoffling in the lawsuit, and he hit back hard. Bishop filed a 127-page long countersuit against the Taylors. It said Hoffling had learned a lot of damning information about the family and their business during his time representing Daniel. According to the lawsuit, Hoffling had hired a private investigator who learned about the girls living in Daniel's house. And Hoffling's suit says he uncovered numerous allegations against Daniel. They included voyeurism, sexual abuse, sexual battery, assault, and unlawful detention. This had all been subject to attorney-client privilege. But now that the Taylors were accusing Hoffling of malpractice, that no longer applied. And Hoffling reserved the right to air it all in open court. There's an old saying, what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. They don't want to have to meet these facts because they'll be highly embarrassing to them and probably lead to uh, legal liability in the long run. But of course, that's the conclusion at the end of the case. The Taylors denied the allegations in the countersuit, and the judge called those allegations redundant, immaterial, impertinent, and scandalous. Hoffling eventually filed a shorter, toned-down version. The two sides finally settled the case last summer. Neither would disclose the terms of the settlement or comment on it. In spite of all the legal headaches, Hoffling had succeeded in once again saving the business. The state never shut Integrity House down, not even for one day. But Hoffling also knew the company's brand had become, in his words, poisonous. When he applied for a license from the state, he literally scratched out the words Integrity House. Above it, written in pen, was a new name. He called it Havenwood Academy. But changing the name didn't make all the problems disappear. We'll get to that in just a moment. In court papers, Blaine Hoffling paints himself as the man who turned Integrity House around. He testified that the building was a slum when he took it over. From its wreckage, he created Havenwood Academy, and he said he transformed it into a thriving business, bringing hope and healing to families. But there's a problem with that narrative, and it's what we found in that giant pile of state records. The document buried in there, the one that sparked our investigation, it was all about Havenwood. My colleague Jessica Miller takes it from here. It's June of 2018, four years after Blaine Hoffling takes over. And Havenwood Academy is having a bad week. One night, the place gets so out of control, the staff have to call the cops. One girl tries to run away, and several get cited for assault and disorderly conduct. And it only gets worse from there. The next day, some of the girls are over at equine therapy. But they're not riding horses. They're shoveling manure. It's something called work crew. Daniel Howarth is there to help supervise. Of course, as we all knew, one of the girls tried to run. It's that same girl who tried to run away the night before. 
She's dropped her shovel, jumped the fence, and is running across the neighbor's property. Howarth is right behind her. He catches up and tries to get a hold of her. Long story short, she ends up hitting me in the face a few times, getting a couple good punches in. Um, Meanwhile, I'm trying to control her with the training that I have. Howarth is trying to use one of those physical holds he's learned as a staffer. But the staff next to me doesn't know what I'm doing. So we, he kind of kicks her legs out. We get her on the ground. And the staff next to me, you know, we're both very, very upset. He's saying mean things to her. The girl is 17, but her mental capacity is more like a nine-year-old's. She would later say a staffer was yelling, what the fuck is wrong with you? As she tried to fight them off. And then, Howard says, things got even more out of control. And I've already spoken to the police about all of this stuff, but I... I end up blacking out completely and punching her in the head a few times. About an hour later, five deputies from the Iron County Sheriff's Office arrive at the horse corral. A woman meets them at the gate. It's Laura Lynn Jones. She's the equine director for Havenwood. One former resident described her to us as the epitome of a cowgirl. In her official headshot, her long blonde hair flows out from under a wide-brimmed black hat. Laura Lynn tells the deputies they can find their suspect out back, and she leads them to a big black plastic tub. It's a trough, the kind horses drink from. They find the girl sitting in there. She's chest deep in dirty water. A deputy yells to get her out. Her clothes are soaked. Her arms are covered in goosebumps. And when she stands up, she keeps her hands behind her back. That's when the deputies see that her wrists are being held together with zip ties. The deputies were concerned to see that adults at Havenwood would treat a kid like that. And Havenwood says this was the only time staff used zip ties on a girl. But former residents say it wasn't the first time they'd used a trough. Far from it. Laura Lynn, that was her thing. It was kind of like a threat. If you're disrespecting me or my staff. If you cuss, if you interrupt, if you are disrespectful. You're going in trough. You sit in a horse trough. It was kind of like a plastic bathtub with a bunch of dirty horse water, like drinking water and it's like hay and dirt and poop. I just remember like stepping in it. It was pretty tall. It was cold. It was gross. It was like mushy. Ew. Kelby Rayner's parents sent her to Havenwood when she was 13. And she experienced the trough firsthand. After they would put us in the trough, we were we would go to school and we were not allowed to change all day. Like, not all day. So you're just, it like, in the- wet clothes at school? Oh, yeah. Kelby's been out of Havenwood for years now. But she says that experience has had a lasting effect on her. I have bad dreams about it. Like, six years later, like, what... That's like definitely some sort of PTSD. It doesn't cleanse you, it freaking like traumatizes you. 
Investigators from the sheriff's office learned that Laurelyn's father had put her in a horse trough. It was his form of discipline when she was five years old. Sitting in the trough was symbolic, she told them. It taught her that the way she was talking to her dad was poopy, like the water. That's a quote from the sheriff's report. This story was insane. When you sent me this document, I was like, there, this is unbelievable. Joe Ryan is a professor of social work at the University of Michigan, and he used to work in residential treatment. Now he studies the social services system, and he was shocked when he read what had happened at Havenwood. You just have to wonder who's in charge of this operation and why are they still in charge of this operation? Ryan says if Michigan regulators had discovered a treatment center disciplining kids in that way, the state would probably shut the place down. That would be a disqualifying event. That provider would no longer be providing for the care and supervision of children. But that's not what happened in Utah. State investigators discovered that Havenwood had been using the trough as therapeutic discipline for the previous three years. And it wasn't Laura Lynn going rogue. Havenwood's clinical director, a social worker named Linda Reeves, told the state that she knew all about it. Amanda Slater is one of the officials who oversees teen treatment programs for the Utah Department of Health and Human Services. She found this incident appalling. I will say, when I read that corrective action plan and that incident, it it was as horrific to me as probably to you. We absolutely would never condone child abuse, and it wouldn't be acceptable to us. But Slater wasn't in charge when the incident happened. And the state's response was more muted. Its investigators found that Havenwood staff had physically abused the girl and restrained her illegally. But even so, the state didn't penalize Havenwood. And so it didn't publish the results of its investigation online. It handled the whole thing discreetly. It just told the company to submit what's called a corrective action plan. Blaine Hoffling, the attorney who owned Havenwood, agreed to stop putting girls in troughs. But he also denied that having girls sit in the trough was abusive, humiliating, or even a form of punishment. And he allowed Laura Lynn Jones to keep her job as equine director. She stayed in that role for another two and a half years. That didn't change until the state of Utah gave us that big batch of documents, the one we told you about at the beginning of the episode. Havenwood's leaders had heard the documents were going to be released. So they decided to get out in front of the story. Havenwood had a new executive director. His name was Ken Huey. And he sent out an announcement to staff about the incident involving Laura Lynn. He emphasized that we shouldn't talk to her or the, our legal person about it at all. And that it was too traumatic for them to talk about. That's right. Too traumatic. For the staff. We heard about Huey's note from a former employee. She asked us not to use her name. She said about a month later, Huey sent out another note. It said Laura Lynn would no longer run the equine program. He had said that she was retiring just because her time had come to an end kind of thing. I spoke to Ken Huey last year, and he described the trough as almost a fun activity. I believe the equine director would say, look, do you want to go, you know, 
spend time alone or whatever it would be if she was acting out or do you want to, you can jump in this horse trough if you want to. And they'd, they'd laugh and jump in the horse trough and cool down. But Huey also acknowledged that it went too far. Well, you know, zip tying and putting them in a, a horse trough, this, it's outside of normal protocols to be sure. It's just not, it's not good care. It's, it's, it's a really, it's a mistake. There's, it's just a mistake by staff that we corrected. And there have been allegations of other misconduct since then. Just two years ago, the mother of a former Havenwood resident called the police. She said a guy who'd worked there was sending inappropriate messages to her daughter. The man had driven 11 hours out to California to give her daughter a hug. Police spoke to Havenwood's clinical director, and she told them that the same former employee had exchanged nude photos with another former resident. Havenwood didn't report anything about it to the state. Utah regulators told us they didn't know about the case until we asked about it. And they've since opened an investigation. Havenwood Academy declined to make its president, Blaine Hoffling, available for an interview. So we submitted our questions in writing. Most of his answers were some version of no comment. And Hoffling concluded with a statement. It said Havenwood has earned a place among industry leaders and serves youth with extremely challenging issues that most programs can't or will not take on. It stressed that without Havenwood, most of these young people would not receive the life-saving help they need. It went on to accuse us of engaging in, quote, agenda-driven propaganda, catering to an ever-narrowing partisan audience, end quote. Joe Ryan, the professor from Michigan, told us the Havenwood story raises a fundamental question for him. Like, what would it take in Utah? I'd be curious to know from their perspective what it would take for someone to say, you're just simply not going to do business in in the state of Utah. Over the last five episodes, we've learned what's not enough. Putting girls in horse troughs, not enough. Staff charged with alleged sex crimes, not enough. Employees submitting detailed complaints about the way the place is run? Not enough. Even a resident dying wasn't enough. So how did we get here? How did Utah become the place that every state in the country trusts with its troubled teenagers? And how did Utah's regulatory system get to the point that state officials give these businesses chance after chance after chance? Mormons are capitalists at the end of the day. We absolutely monetize our theology. This is a place that cares. This is a place that we're allowed to care. And this is a place that we can serve. Strip search, forced to live on dirty water, marched 15 miles a day with a concussion and a broken toe. 
how do I see regulation in the ideal world? In the ideal world, there would be none. That's next time on Sent Away. If you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to Sent Away in your favorite podcast app. That way you won't miss a single episode. And it would be great if you'd write us a review, too. There's more to our investigation of the teen treatment industry in Utah. You can find it on our website. It's sentaway.org. Sent Away is produced by APM Reports, KUER, and the Salt Lake Tribune. It's reported by David Fox, Jessica Miller, and me, Curtis Gilbert. Data reporting by Will Kraft. Special thanks this week to Peyton Harkins. We also had help from Rebecca Wahlberg and Martha Harris. Kate Cahan is our editor. She had help from Elaine Clark and Matt Canham. Fact-checking by Betsy Towner-Levine. Our web editor is Andy Cruz. Michael Alcesser is the managing producer. Scoring and production by Nancy Rosenbaum, with sound mixing from Alex Simpson. Engineering by David Childs. Original music by Roddy Nickbor. We also had help from our great intern, Hannah Akramity. Support for Sent Away was provided by Arnold Ventures, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the Hollyhock Foundation.